And the start of the week and a busy old day on the radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. I realised in trouble I bent down to put a lead on him and to catch him but one of the dogs came then, shot at him and I kind of jumped back and um, next thing they had him by the throat and I heard the crunch and he was gone within 10-15 seconds. You have to ask yourself the question Keen. You know, would you hand over 50 euros or 100 euros to somebody wearing a dark mask on the street and they're going to go around the corner and come back with the goods? You wouldn't. And that's what people are doing on the internet. She said, but but I'm not autistic. And I looked in the rear view and I looked at her and I said, but you, you are autistic, love. And she said, ma'am, I'm not autistic. And we'll start in the afternoon where a very upset Seamus called Katie Hannon about a very traumatic experience. And if you're a dog lover, this is a very difficult story to listen to. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm, 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 not, I'm not great at all. I suffered a lot of trauma and I just can't get it out of my head, Katie. So Seamus, uh, tell us what happened. Uh, I was out walking my dog, Dustin. We were up in the Golden Island in Burgess Park in Athlone. Uh, down by the river, and uh, we were, were walking up, and I, I saw two two dogs. Two, I, I didn't like the look of them. Dogs coming towards me, but I thought there was a man with them, so I said I'd be okay. I, I noticed they were off the lead, but the, the two dogs came up, up towards me, and when they got close to me, one of them just dropped to the ground, and the other circled around to my left. The river was on my right. The other one circled around to the left. And I said at this stage, I called to the man to control your dog. And he didn't know what I was saying. So I, 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 felt, I felt an immediate danger. And I, I pulled my dog on the lead to, to get out of there. And at that moment, the dog in front of me just sprang at Dustin. And at the same time, the dog who was off to my left came in and charged in at him. So a fight started. And I was kicking at them, trying to get them out, and I managed to pull Dustin. I was taking him further down the path, when, and I had him on the lead in one hand, and I was reaching down to try and pick him up with my arm, with my other arm, when the two dogs came again, and they just caught him by the haunches from behind, and they're big, heavy dogs, and, and just pulled them, they dragged them out of my arms, and at the same time, the lead came off over his head, probably just as well with the forces, I don't know, but the, it just came off. And I lost him. He just went down on the ground. And he was, and they were on him. They flipped him over and they were on him in a second. And I was terrified. I couldn't put my hands down to try and pull him. I was terrified they'd come for me. Oh, Seamus. I just started it... screaming and roaring. And, oh, I, just, I just was screaming everywhere looking for help. And there was, there was families there. There was, there was a couple with, with three small children, I remember. And I was shouting at them to help. And actually, they did the right thing. They took their children and got out of there, you know. Uh, and a, a few other people arrived at that stage. But there was nothing. All I can do, all I can hear, Katie, is just little whimpers at the end. One day, they got on him at his throat. And he just whimpering. And then he was gone. And I what kind? What kind of a dog? So first of all, sorry, Seamus. I, I, can you be so upset there? It's a bit. It, there's a bit of noise in the background because I know you're at the airport. Uh, um, yeah. But listen, 
what, what kind of a dog was Dustin? Was uh, a collie? Was it? He, he was a collie cross. A collie cross. He was actually we we got him out of the the pound the rescue pound when he was just uh, probably a couple of months old. He was still a little pup, uh, and I'm not sure what else was in him. He was definitely a collie, and he was the most beautiful dog you'd ever see. He was really unusual colours. Uh, brownish and he's a big bushy tail and he had face everything was the same it was like a little fox he had that sort of a face and all he ever wanted he'd come running up all he ever wanted was people to rub him and, him and tell him how lovely he was you know he'd come running up and he'd stick up his skin and he just wanted to he just wanted to be rubbed and passed nothing in his life ever prepared him for, for what happened on that Saturday on the Burgess Park he, he had no idea and what the dogs that attacked him? Do you do you know what kind of what breed they were? They're an, an, they're a new American bulldog. It's what they're called. They're, they're a new breed, Katie, that have been brought in. Uh, I don't know. I presume from America. They've only been brought in in the last few years, and are becoming very common. So I'm told. And are they are they actually on the the restrictive breeds list? Are are they dogs? That... No, no, because I've checked the restricted breed list and the, uh, and they're not listed there. Apparently, the breed is registered with the Irish Kennel Club, uh, while the breed itself comes from uh, Pitbull and I think uh, uh, an American Bulldog is what I believe it comes from, uh, and both of which are on the restricted. Uh, list. These ones aren't because they're a new breed. That is something I would like to happen. It's really, they should, as a matter of urgency, they should be registered with the Kennel Club and placed on that on that list. And this incident ended up in court. When we got to have the dogs go down, uh, they, there was they weren't being voluntarily agreed to be to uh, to being put down. So it ended up the Gardaí made an application to the court uh, on the following Wednesday. Then the case was heard and it was contested in court. Uh, the application to have the two dogs destroyed. So myself and another lady whose dog was attacked a few moments after mine, uh, we both had to go to court and recount the details and give evidence regarding what happened. It's just such a, a traumatic and upsetting. If you could, if you could understand it, I just can't. I, I, I'm here in the airport at the moment because I'm, I'm back to work. I wasn't able to go to work all last week, and I, I had to work abroad. And the whole drive up here to Dublin, when you're sitting in the car, all I can just is keep replaying the incident over and over and over again in my head. I just can't get it out. All I can see is those dogs coming up and dragging them off. That's over and here is little boy, little whimper. And it's just over, it's constant. Before I talk to you, actually, I I rang. I'm trying to get some professional help on this because I'm just not able to get this out Uh, of my head. I I should be moving on to the piece the piece where I'm missing them and of course I do miss them but I haven't really moved on to there at all I'm still back at that Saturday afternoon in Burgess Park uh, and, and, and I'm watching them then drive from me and uh, oh, it's just awful I'm so so sorry Seamus uh, as you lost your lovely your lovely collie and uh, oh, he was so beautiful he was just beautiful there was builders in the house two weeks ago 
and we'd put them out the back, you know, yeah, as, as you do. And the builder rang us and asked us, do you mind if I let the dog in? Because he's great company, and all he does is follow me around the place, and I rub him every now and again. That's how everybody just loved him. You know, and the builders took pictures of him, actually. <laughs> they wanted to bring him to bring pictures oh. home to show their family. You know, that's the sort of little family he was. Well, that's Seamus there. Then Billy spoke to Katie. Yeah, Billy, you're the chair of um, Animal Haven Ireland in Athlone. Yeah, that's the uh, local animal charity. Um, I got a 99 call um, from the Garda, you know, to attend the scene. But I live about 30 miles away. So by the time I got in, the dog warden and the Garda were on the scene and, and um, you know, they had the situation under control. Um, I, I seen the, the collie there torn apart, you know, he was dead at that stage, you know. So I couldn't really assist, you know. And wh- um, what were you told when you got the call? What did you What did you expect? I was I was told that there was um, two uh, bull breed type of dogs uh, had attacked a dog and had killed it, and uh, the dogs are still on the loose. And could I come? You know. And um, so I went and got my dog catcher pole and uh, some bite-proof gloves and that, you know, and threw it in the van. But I said when I got there, it was just too late, you know. And where were the dogs that had attacked Dustin at that stage? They were still running around the park. They had ran in and out of the shopping centre, uh, the security staff put them out. They actually ran into a hairdresser's and there was a pile of kids and uh, women in there getting their hair done on a Saturday afternoon. And the two dogs ran in there and scared the life out of everyone, you know. Thankfully, um, some brave woman chased the dog out of the hairdressers, you know. My God. And, and this is after they had attacked Dustin? Well, before and after, yeah. Wow. Um... They... They, they, the dogs have been roaming the town now for uh, in and out there, the parks, for the last, uh, I suppose, a month. And, um, like, we, we told the Garda, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard for the Garda to, to actually feed the dogs and, and get them, because it's, 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 the, it's the work of a dog warden, you know. Yeah, and I imagine it'd be quite dangerous if a guard wasn't, you know, properly prepared. Well, like, um, well I was afraid going to, ta- going to tackle them myself, even, even with the dog catcher poles and gloves, you know. It's their, um, them dogs have huge um, mouths, you know, and uh, if it, one of them dogs grabs you on the arm, it'll break your arm. And that's the truth. That's why they're restricted and they, they have to have muzzles on them. And, um, but apparently, actually, we, got, we, we spoke to the department about this, actually, I'm told. I've just got a note here now. And I'm told that the Department of Rural Community and Community Development says that actually the American Bulldog isn't on the restricted list. Because apparently they're, not, they're a new breed. Yeah, yeah, they are a new breed. And we, we, we've had them now in Athlone. And uh, the frightening thing with them is, too, the um, people that get them dogs, they do an operation on their ear. They kind of cut their ear into a V shape and makes them even look fiercer. Yeah. Now that's totally legal, but but someone is doing it. You know, it must be a backstreet butcher, butcher type operation. But uh, but bull bull breeds in general uh, are banned. You know, so that covers any new breed. So they are they are on the restricted list. Now they they should be okay. The exact type of dog should be put on there, but bull breeds in general. Uh, pit bull breeds, any mixed breeds of them are um, are on that list, you know, and that's that's the way we work and the dog warden works, uh, you know, that way, you know. So you're saying, yeah, if a, if a dog warden were there, they would consider those new American bulldogs to be restricted, even if they're oh, not they specifically they listed would. by name on the restricted list. No, but they're, 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 yeah. the, the list is bull breed, you know, bulldog type breed, so that, that does cover it. But I mean, at the same time, 
they should be specifically put on, you know, as well. Well, that's Billy there. Then Joe called about an encounter with a Staffordshire Bull Terrier. Well, it was Staffordshire Bull, yeah, it was two of them. Uh, and very similar to that gentleman, I'd like to sympathise with him very strongly. Quite a traumatic experience. Uh, they uh, encountered them without the owner. They'd escaped. It wasn't the owner's fault, just uh, an oversight. And um, they circled around my little dog. Was the, uh, uh, the, his name was Tiny, but he's a lovely character. He's about 12 years old. And um, I realised I'm in trouble. I bent down to put a lead on him and to catch him. But one of the dogs came then, shot at him. And I kind of jumped back and... Um, Next thing, they had him by the throat, and I heard the crunch, and he was gone within 10, 15 seconds. Yeah. It's very, it very traumatic, very, oh, very... Joe. Heavy. What, uh, what kind of a dog was Tiny? Uh, he was a kind of a... Uh, he was a bit of a mongrel, but he would have been a bit of a... a, uh, a Wesley, West Highland Terrier. He would have been a bit of that, and he was quite... He, all the kids loved him in the place. You know, he was... He, you got great admiration from him when you took him into the into the village or anything, you know, kids love them. But look, uh, it was, uh, I, I, I blame myself, like, you know, for not picking him up, actually, but I was interested to hear what would happen that uh, they do with the Bichon Freeze. You yeah, know, we know, exactly, yeah. And, you yeah I, I don't know if that would have happened, but I felt fierce guilty for a long time about it. I'd have to say that I, I, the local police were excellent because they... Um, uh, tracked down the owner and they, 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 the owner was, was responsible in fairness. He agreed to dogs being put down. The local police said they'd have to insist on it and he didn't contest it. So it was a, it was a, a good outcome like that. We didn't have to go to court and that. But, um, but I mean, I a, just, it's a bad outcome yeah. though for that owner. I mean, as you say, in, in that course, case, yeah. in it that is, case, yeah. it was yeah. just an oversight and that can happen to anyone. You could you should say that, that dogs can get out. Because, because he was taking the dogs for a walk yeah. and, uh, a, I think he, he was called back into the house. His wife might have called him. And uh, when he came out, he, the dogs were gone. He went one way, but the dogs had gone my way. Uh, it's a different way. I, I do kind of uh, uh, tend to disagree with the idea that it's the owners. In this case, the owner is, you know, quite responsible and just unfortunate. It was an oversight. I think the dogs are bred for fighting and um, the, the potential is, is there. So they should be regulated quite strictly. And not, uh, I, I know there is regulation there, but unfortunately, I think also that regulation needs to be enforced in terms of um, of having... Uh, uh, Dog wardens. Muzzles and, and that. Yeah, yeah. but, and, uh, but, but uh, sure, like, Joe, as, as, as Billy was saying, there there's there's so few dog wardens to cover the whole country. Yeah, I, I get that. and. Uh, but I, I think, uh, you know, that maybe more than the dog waters can keep an eye on. Certainly the police in my situation were excellent. The guards are excellent. I'd compliment them. And uh, maybe they could be given the task of keeping an eye out because you see the dogs from time to time walking and uh, and, and no muscles on them. And I, I, I find it a bit um, like a, a shudder goes up my back when I see them. Now, I, I have to walk away from them because I, uh, I, you know, fortunately they didn't attack me. I think they thought I was the dominant breed, uh, hmm. and I, I kind of... The really difficult thing was trying to get them off the, the body of the dog so I could oh, yeah. take them away. And, and that took about five minutes, beating them with a, a big um, pole, and yeah, really, it was very unpleasant. That's Joe on the live line with Katie Hannon. 
And on Today with Claire Byrne, it's early days in the World Cup in Qatar and sports journalist Gavin Cooney of the 42.ie was talking to Claire about the latest controversy from Doha. And the breaking news is that England and Wales and other football federations have decided to back down on wearing their one love armband due to the risk of referees issuing players with a yellow card or worse. Now, Gavin, this emerged in the last couple of minutes. Just tell us what has happened. It's kind of an extraordinary story, really, Claire. So you, you may remember from we discussed on the show previously that the captains of the European teams at, at this World Cup planned on wearing an armband, um, a rainbow-coloured armband bearing the phrase "One Love" um, in a quietly in, in a rather subtle um, um, support of LGBT of the LGBT community. But over the weekend, FIFA announced at short notice that players would instead be instructed to wear other FIFA-mandated slogans on their armbands. They would change for every match. Uh, hashtag football unites the world was the slogan to be worn today. Uh, and that meant that the uh, player, the captains of the European sides intending on wearing the one love armband would be booked if they wore the one love armband because it would be technically in contravention of FIFA's equipment rules, which these rules which change late on Saturday night. So, so we have this joint statement from the football associations who are affected. So England, Wales, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands and Switzerland. And they're saying that the not going to put their captains at risk of a straight yellow card Mm. if they wear this armband. But that doesn't stop, you would imagine, a captain or any number of those captains deciding themselves to wear the armband. Yep, they, they they can go and do it. No one can stop them strapping that uh, to their bicep before they walk out and accept the yellow card. I mean, teams teams have five substitutes. They could say, they could they could they could pick a guy for the first minute to wear the armband and then substitute him off so as he doesn't get sent off later in the game. Mm-hmm. It's quite extraordinary. Like I mean, the FAs were willing to pay fines if FIFA imposed them, but this has changed the goalposts again, and they believed it was unfair to put players in that position. And it, it's it's just it's a fairly you know it's a, it's a it's a fairly risible episode that sums up this World Cup because the uh, criticism of the One Love armband was that it was quite an empty and meaningless slogan. It wasn't anything direct. FIFA's stance on this changed over the weekend. That actually imbued it with some significance and meaning. Now you would have to defy FIFA to wear it um, and the cap uh, when they were faced with that have dropped. Mm -hmm. I see Miguel Delaney, the sports writer, saying that FIFA also say they're bringing forward their no discrimination campaign from the quarter final so players can wear that armband at that stage. Right. Okay. I wasn't aware of that, but okay, mm-hmm. that was due into the quarterfinals. They were meant to revolve it, but it, you know, it's another, it's another empty corporate statement, really, isn't it? I mean, they I mean the, the one love armband actually meant something. Now that was it was put on, it was questioned by FIFA and made technically, um, technically illegal by their own rules, and they dropped it. And then, like hashtag no discrimination, if that's permitted by FIFA at the expense of something that wasn't permitted, what significance and meaning does that really have? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that'll be put to the test at one o'clock today. That's the first time we'll see this in action, right, when England uh, start their first game. Mm, yeah, correct. Harry Kane is the man. Is the man uh, he'll have the eyes of the world on him when he walks out, uh, leads England out against Iran later today. All right. Now, you've been there since Saturday. What's it been like? What are the facilities like? How have you been settling in? What have you seen? 
Um, pretty good. I mean, I haven't really got a chance to go out and explore Qatar really yet. I mean, I only landed late Saturday night, so I spent yesterday on the on the kind of treadmill running from um, hotel to media center and then out to the stadium. Um, there was a slight issue with my accreditation because uh, someone at FIFA mixed up um, the my passport date of issue with the date of issue, date of issue of of myself, which meant that they did technically accredit a six month old journalist, which would make me one of the younger <laughs> journalists in the press box. And then there was um, there was gridlock outside the stadium the Albeit stadium which held the opening ceremony and the opening game yesterday there was um Catteries were encouraged to take their cars presumably to lessen the burden on public transport this stadium is 30 miles out into the desert there's nothing else around you have to get there by car or bus um our maybe i don't know if it's indicative of a syst- systematic problem with the organization but uh, the driver of our media shuttle bus taking us out the stadium managed to get lost uh, so he didn't know where he was going we ended up looping around the stadium three or four times for about two hours before eventually abandoning it on the motorway about a kilometre from the stadium and walking the rest of the way. So that meant that you missed part of the opening ceremony? I missed about half the opening ceremony. Uh, as, to, <laughs> as to how much I missed, I'm not really sure. I came in to see uh, Morgan Freeman kind of in a strange kind of splayed position on the ground, um, repeating FIFA slogans about how football unites the world and then stopped, watched as the Emir of Qatar addressed the world. And as for that speech by Infantino. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was this uh, bizarre tirade the other day from the FIFA president Gianna Infantino saying that he showed empathy with people saying today I feel gay, today I feel like a migrant worker. What was that about? Um, well, I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question. I regret to say that I wasn't in the room. I've watched it back since. I talked to a few journalists who, in, who were in the room who now have, uh, have pains on their back from stooping to pick their jaws up off the floor. Infantino was trying to uh, you know, articulate how football unites the world to use their own corporate problem um, and brings the world together and how he feels empathy with all of these people. He said he feels that he understands the plight of a migrant worker because he was bullied as a school for having ginger hair and freckles. To, I mean, to, <laughs> at which point you meant I don't know whether you meant to jeer or laugh at that, but it, it was part of a piece, you know. I mean, and I think you can see it as well with this stance around the late minute stance around the uh, one love armband. Jenny Infantino has derided what they what he described as Western hypocrisy, hypocrisy in the media, Europe rather than highlight the human rights issues in Qatar involved in the build up to this World Cup should instead be apologising for the three thousand years of history that went before it. So to take that to its logical end, we couldn't criticise the migrant workers who died building stages because Joan of Arc was put to death. I mean, it's an absolute absurdity, but it presumably plays well locally, certainly with the people organising the tournament. They have on many occasions derided the hypocrisy and the moralising of the Western media and presumably plays well with his base. Um, And he has a rather large base to the point that he's going to run unopposed to be re-elected as FIFA president next year. It's such a strange event. The entire thing is just bizarre, isn't it? Honestly... It's, I mean, it was just that match last night, Claire, was just the weirdest experience of my admittedly fairly short career at this point. But you drive for 30 miles and then all of a sudden this brand new stadium like gleaming just rises from the sand out of nowhere with these like little patches of lush manicured grass around it and nothing else around it and this costs 200 billion dollars like a palace built on a famine road and then the football was abysmal I mean Qatar I didn't think Qatar would be as bad as they did as bad as they were I think there were players were probably under a little bit too much pressure and froze um, beneath the world's glare but they were shocking I mean it was Mm -hmm. 2-0 but Ecuador went 2-0 up after what 25 minutes or so and then realised this is 
had against boys and they just kind of put the handbrake on and coasted from there but I think one I think the most um the thing that struck me most from the stadium was it was about a third empty after after half time so the stadium the tournament that we've been waiting 12 years for that Qatar spent 200 billion dollars for many of their home supporters didn't bother sticking around for the second half it's about a third empty then I don't think they showed the stands on the television coverage uh, to show just how empty it was and then it was almost entirely empty going into the last seven or eight minutes of the game Yeah and then tonight of course we have uh, England's debut or rather lunchtime today England's debut against Iran they'd be expected to win that but all the attention now is going to be on this armband issue all the pressure is going to be on Harry Kane yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, FIFA will say, you know, stick to the football. Let's not talk about the politics. Again, FIFA have accentuated this. They've made they've made this story, really. And we'll see if, if Kane or any of the other captains defies their, um, their, defies their orders. But I'd be shocked. Gavin Cooney of the 42.ie from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Morning Ireland, warnings about internet scams during Black Friday week. Keir McCormick was looking at the rise in cybercrime. And Garda Siakana is warning people not to get scammed by cyber criminals in upcoming Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales. The call comes as new figures show more than €45 million euro was stolen through frauds and scams in the second half of last year. And as it is predicted, as much €26 million euro will be spent on shopping on Black Friday. Keen McCormack has the story. Keen, first, these figures, where are they coming from? Yeah, well, Gavin, that figure of €45 million Euros that you mentioned stolen through frauds and scams is from a report called Fraud Smart by Banking and Payments Federation Ireland. Neave Davenport is head of financial crime with the Federation and she says card fraud is going back to levels we haven't seen for years. It's at the highest levels it has been since um, 2017. So we're going back to pre-pandemic levels. And a lot of that is driven by online shopping with cards, in particular card not present. And this is where fraudsters uses the victim's compromised card information to make purchases online. So with Black Friday happening and obviously in the, in the run up to Christmas, we really are urging customers to take care. The Fraud Smart report also shows debt, debit and credit card fraud hit 14.5 million for the second half of 2021, up 18.5%, the highest level since 2017. Again, here's Neve Davenport. We're also, with all the restrictions lifted, for example, we're seeing fraud levels return to pre-COVID levels with things like um, scammed cards in point of sale. So that's where cards have been stolen and used at point of sale, um, actually in retail. So there's a lot of things that have come back. Fraudsters are very good at adapting to different situations and that's what they're doing again now. €26 million Euro is expected to be spent next Friday for Black Friday. Where's this figure coming from, Kean? Yeah, well, that figure, Gavin, is from AIB. It says €18,000 will be spent every minute next Friday, totaling £26 million for the day. Of course, that's a prediction. Last year, that figure was €25,000 spent every minute. Uh, and if you do the calculation on that, that's a drop of €7,000 per minute. John Brennan, head of SME Banking at AIB, explained why. So what we see this year... Um, on Black Friday is probably a normalisation of customer behaviours. If we look back to 2020 and 2021, the Irish consumer was impacted by COVID uh, and the associated restrictions. And that would have driven a lot of activity online and probably a reduction in footfall in the physical locations. So this year, what we see is a normalisation of that. But as you say, €26 million at an average rate of €18,000 per minute is a huge amount of activity uh, online over the course of that day. So that spend is expected to be down this year the cost of living crisis, is that the reason why? 
I think what we'll see, Keen, is that the Irish consumer is going to use Black Friday to seek value. Um, there's going to be a lot of deals out there. And certainly, you know, when we look at behaviour over the last number of years, consumers are spreading that spend over the course of November, Black Friday in particular, into December as they, as, as they prepare for the Christmas period. Um, on Garda Siakana, uh, Kian is concerned. What's it calling on people to do? Yeah, it's calling for people to be alert when they're shopping online. So essentially, Gavin, if you see a bargain that's too good to be true, well, then it's probably too good to be true. Here's Detective Chief Superintendent Patrick Lorden of the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau. We would be warning all shoppers thinking of shopping online, even if they're a regular shopper online, to beware of the risk you're taking, both uh, on this Friday and on Monday and coming up to the Christmas. There are a lot of criminals out there setting up fake websites, setting up fake ads on social media. So you need to be aware of that and be very alert to it. Do a little bit of research. Don't hand over your money to the first person you see on social media, hoping that this product will be delivered. You have to ask yourself the question, Keen. You know, would you hand over 50 euros or 100 euros to somebody wearing a dark mask on the street and they're going to go around the corner and come back with the goods? You wouldn't. And that's what people are doing on the internet. They're giving money to people they've never met. They don't know where their business is. They don't know where they live in the hope that the goods will be supplied by these people. And, and don't be uh, fooled by any of these ads. Some of these ads can be for items only for 29, 39, 59 euro. Because what the criminals are doing, if they add up 400 people, you know, at 30 euros, that's a lot of money to them. The multiplier is greater for the smaller amounts of money because people are even less cautious than they would be with larger amounts of money. Detective Chief Superintendent Patrick Lorden speaking to Kian McCormick on Morning Ireland. And on Today with Claire Byrne, one of the most common ailments to befall us, lower back pain. Spinal surgeon Dr Derek Colley was talking to Claire Byrne in the morning. So people who've been diagnosed with lower back uh, pain, everyone knows one or is one. But the specificity that you might find with other conditions or diseases can sometimes be lacking. It can be hard to diagnose or find a path through to treatment. Yeah, that that is absolutely true. Um, When we talk about pregnancy, a person's either pregnant or they're not. If they have cancer, they either have cancer or they don't. Um, if they have diabetes, similar. A lot of the conditions that affect us in the Western world have much more clarity than back pain and in particular the the definitions. So, for example, a lot of the guidelines from around the world for back pain actually call it non-specific low back pain. It doesn't help us much, does it? No, it's very annoying if you're the person with the lower back pain, if it's called non-specific. So it's very specific if you have it. It's very specific and there are specifics to it. Um, so the I often find that uh, when I train some of the junior doctors or some colleagues in this area, I go straight for the specifics. Absolutely. OK, so and it can be very difficult to diagnose. It can be very difficult for a patient to describe it. Mm, that's right. And there's a grey area there. For example, all of us adults will get back pain at some point in our lives. And therefore, it's easy to assume that the back pain that I have, for example, is the same as the back pain that you have, etc. So society doesn't necessarily lend that much kindness to somebody, particularly with chronic, persistent low back pain. Mm -hmm. So, for example, while everybody will get low back pain, 
up to 20% will have back pain more than three months, which is defined as persistent or chronic. And in those people, it's not a case of the natural history sorting it out. So, but what I mean by that is that the natural history are left untreated. If we did nothing, if I as a doctor saw somebody who had back pain for a week, if I did nothing except just be kind to that person, there's a good chance that they're going to settle down. It's going to improve on its own anyway. And I just need to reassure them out of that because the natural history would suggest that it's going to get, take care of itself. But in up to 20 percent, the natural history is not that. It persists and it causes further issues and they're often left undiagnosed and they're lumped in along with the other non-specific low back pains. Just want to talk about, you know, the general course for people who have lower back pain. They'll probably go to their GP, would you say, in many cases? They may be referred for an MRI. Is that what you want to see happen or, or what's your advice to people who have lower back pain? What do they do? So the modern approach for this is the multidisciplinary approach. And if anybody goes to their GP, they should definitely be going to a therapist to address that back pain. Most common a physiotherapist, physical therapist, neuromuscular therapist, sports therapist, but most commonly physiotherapist. And they will get a different perspective from the different people involved in their care. So that's why there are huge advantages to a multidisciplinary assessment and therefore, if needed, a multidisciplinary treatment. That multidisciplinary team may also include, for example, a, a counsellor or somebody to help them to cope with it or somebody who provides injections or but the important thing is that the treatment is always much stronger when you round it off with different perspectives for for people who can offer different treatments to different parts of their low back pain mm-hmm. and you are correct in that the vast majority of people will visit their GP and the GP will often reassure that person. And as I said to you, in most cases, it will settle down on its own. They will need a couple of basic treatments. Unfortunately, what we tend to do, there's a culture in Ireland, I would say more so than most countries, in that when that person returns with back pain, the panic button is pressed and an MRI scan is assumed to be the next step. And that's not necessarily a good step because I see hundreds of MRI scans, I would say, per week. And they don't necessarily help me to be specific about that person's back pain. Actually, the most specific thing that that I can do with that person is to listen to their story because their story will tell me what are the specifics of their back pain. The story tells you more than the MRI. Absolutely. An MRI scan is, is a really good scan. It sure is. The best thing about an MRI scan is, it'll, is that it'll outrule certain things for me. And that might be fine. For example, a person might be absolutely convinced that they have cancer in their back. And while that is less than 3% of cases, if, if, if even that, an MRI scan will definitely outrule that. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of things like a fracture and an MRI scan will outrule that. But in the vast, vast majority of cases, you're looking for something that will tell you the cause of that person's pain. And Claire, there is no such thing as a pain scan. It'd be great if I had a button. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be brilliant to make my job much easier. But that's not the case. And the questions were flooding in. It's now. interesting, Claire. You know, the questions are flooding in because there's so little clarity about these. People are asking for information. So you can see that probably from your texts that people want to know why am I having this pain? They're looking for answers. Yeah, it's, it's a woolly, it's a woolly thing, isn't exactly, it? As you exactly. say, non-specific lower back pain. Yeah. So Geraldine wants to know, is a problem with glute muscles connected with the lower back? Uh, the answer is yes, absolutely. Because the glute muscles are 
uh, extenders of the hip. They help us to stand up straight and they help us to walk. And in this life where we spend most of our time sitting down, the glutes are usually weak and the back is overused. And when we go to walk, then we have weak hips. So because of that, we get tendon problems in the glutes and we get overuse problems in the back. Very common. So what do you want people to do to address that? So I'm not a physiotherapist, but I would say step one is go to a physiotherapist. And what they will do with that person is they'll get working on their glutes in terms of lunges, squats, thrusts, bridges, all of the typical therapies for glutes. To, stre- to strengthen that area? Not To strengthen it. Ab- yeah, absolutely. To strengthen it, but also to strengthen it in the right way. Um, and mm. that takes a little bit of supervision. Anybody can download exercises off the internet, but they need somebody making sure they're doing it correctly. Now, another one. I have lower back pain and nerve pain down my leg with pins and needles in the foot and I'm losing power in my leg. Can you explain that? Yeah, you can You can see it there. So no more than if I was to stand on an electrical wire, that an electrical wire will not work correctly in the same way that nerve is probably being compressed. The commonest cause of that would be a disc to compress it, but it could be something else as well. Is that the sciatic nerve that's compressed? Yeah, so the sciatic is that cable of nerves that runs from a number of different nerve roots in your lower back. It's the biggest nerve in the body and any of the feeders into that nerve could be compressed by a disc or other or anything else. I suppose my job as a spine surgeon is I'm I'm essentially a plumber. I will look at the pipe that's blocked and ask what's blocking it. And it might be a disc that blocks it. It might be a bit of bone that's overgrown that blocks it. It might be a cyst that blocks it. It might be a buckled ligament. Anything that will block that pipe will therefore cause nerve compression. And the result is sciatica. Okay. Dr. Derek Colley, spinal surgeon at the Matter Private Hospital from today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tuberty show, Lara Mullins was talking about being a parent to four children. Three have autism and Lara has written a book chronicling her experience. It's called It Takes a Village, The Journey of Parenting Your Autistic Child. So Ryan asked Lara about her daughter, Ellie. So Ellie is my firstborn. She's the first of four. And at the moment she's 20 and she's studying at the University of Galway and she is keeping the social life for Galway alive down here, thankfully, (laughs) after the pandemic. Great. Um, at the moment, Alex is 14 and he is doing his junior cert and then Daisy is nine and she's in fourth class. OK, and tell me a little bit about um, when Ellie was born. You were very young yourself when Ellie came into the world and she uh, reached all her milestones. All was good. Absolutely. Everything was fine. But I think when you have your first child and you don't have another child to compare them to. And I was 19 when I had Ellie. Yeah. Um, so everything seemed fine. Now, in hindsight, when we looked back, there definitely were signs that we didn't see. Um, so Ellie spoke really early on. So she was speaking in sentences by about 12 months, like really clearly um, parroting after us when we'd say words. And we thought she was amazing. And the girls in the creche thought she was amazing. Um, but it was really only when we had our second child that we started noticing kind of quite frequent behavioural issues. So, you know, most little toddlers will bite or most toddlers will hit another child. Um, but when it happens, you know, every day and multiple times a day, And when it consistently happens and none of the responses are being effective, then it does kind of make you wonder, is there something more here? But it's easy to explain things away with the terrible twos, terrible threes, Mm. terrible fives, terrible sevens. Um, But for for her and for us, it was really hard because she wanted to not be getting given out to. She didn't want time out. We know now, 15 years later, that time out isn't an appropriate response to a child with additional needs. But at that time, we didn't know what the issue was and it was very much trial and error. And it's great now because Ellie will tell me this was really good that you didn't do so well 
try this, you know, with her younger siblings. So I have that resource now. She's there beside me and blunt as anything, thank mm. God. Well, that's great. But but at the time, not good. Like, even the, the, the words baby gone. Yeah, so she used to throw things over her younger brother, who's uh, Daniel in the book. She'd cover him with a blanket or she'd cover him with a towel. Um, I realised very quickly that I couldn't leave them alone for a second. So she'd hand him a piece of coal to eat or she'd open a tub of pseudo cream and put it all over him and hand it to him and say that he did it. So there was some funny things and she loves when I tell these stories now and her younger siblings do. But like she turned him upside down in his car seat one time and then more serious things. So I started off the book with the worst day um, about when we were driving in the car and Ellie had let herself out of her car seat. She was three. She also let her little brother out of his car seat and he ended up on my lap and I had to stop in the middle of the road. Um, we, we almost got killed by a truck that day. Um, and I told nobody, Ryan, I was so ashamed. I really felt I'm doing something terribly wrong. There's something wrong with me as a parent that I can't keep my children safe. Yeah. I was so ashamed. So people have read the book, even my parents included, and have said, wow, Lara, there was so much that I didn't know about. The blender. Pardon? The oh, bl- the blender. So, yeah. So the, And what's funny is we laugh at these things, but they're yeah. actually horrific. But so, no, they're, um, they're, they're dark humour after the event, and I get that absolutely. entirely. But, but when you're reading them as a, as a list, you're going... Well, look, you keep going because we'll, we'll, we'll reflect on it all in a minute. But so yes. one, of his, um, one of his war wounds that Daniel has, Daniel is 19, he has a little circle on his face and this is from when Ellie tried to blend his face with a hand blender and she stuck it in so much that he's scarred for life now. So stuff like that, which they think is hilarious and we definitely do dark humour in our house. So okay. they call um, Daniel the adopted one because he's not autistic. <laughs> Um, you know, the black sheep of the family because he's not autistic. And then if you say anything to, to Ellie, yeah. she'd be like, oh, are you saying that because I'm autistic? Oh are you being God. ableist? So that's how we roll, you know? Yeah, that's the, I think that is the most refreshing approach to your story in some ways because you could get so earnest and lost in, 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 in it all that you forget that, look, people have a sense of humour despite everything. Absolutely. And that's what gets us through, sure. among other things. Definitely. So let's, let's stick with, with Ellie's story for the moment anyway. She she was doing all of these things. We'll keep her in this age group for the moment because she's achieved some great things. We'll get there later on. But she but the, the, the blender, the car accidents, the, 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 the meltdowns, as they're called, uh, which worsened when she started school. And wh- wh- you're, you're such a young mum at that point. Wh- what do you do with all of that? So at that time, I suppose I was starting to knock on the doors. I had mentioned to my GP at that time, who had been my childhood GP even because I was so young myself, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about her behaviour. Um, but a lot of it is explained away. And, you know, of course, there's going to be challenging behaviour for toddlers. Um, but the stairs incident was a very serious one that I spoke about in the book. So um, Ellie had pushed Daniel down the stairs and actually knocked him unconscious. So I think they were two and one at that time. He was about one and a half. Um, so that was when I was, you know, really certain that this was outside of the range of what would be considered normal in inverted commas or typical mm. behaviour. Um, and so we obviously had to go to the hospital and he'd been knocked unconscious. But within four weeks, we were back there again with a head injury for um, Daniel. So this time um, Ellie had pushed him out of his high chair. He was still in the high chair and he hit his head off the ground. So this is when I was certain, but it it was almost like it felt around like I had to argue for mm, it. Mm. It seemed like a fight and it did all the way along, you know, to really get somebody to listen or to hear us. And that's what I hear with a lot of the moms who support me and who I support. And Lara spoke about the constant feelings of worry and stress. If you have an autistic child and your phone rings during the day, 
you absolutely jump. And if it's the school, you jump, you start sweating and you're shaking because you're thinking, what is after happening now? Is my child okay? You know, do I need to run and go and pick them up? So all of those things combined. And I'm sure then, so that with all of those things happening and me maybe struggling to cope with them, that that probably impacted my parenting as well. My level of patience Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, my coping capacity overall. And and again, I'm going to ask you to talk a bit about that shortly. But in terms of Ellie's um, diagnosis, you you, you achieved that ultimately. And what did they say? Yes, so initially Ellie was diagnosed with ODD or Oppositional Defiant Disorder. So this one she was, was when she was about four. Then at the age of about six, she was diagnosed with ADHD. And it wasn't until she was 11 that she was given her diagnosis of autism. So we do know that like up to 50% of children who have um, autism have another diagnosed condition as well. Um, and for me, we felt absolute relief. But what was really interesting, I wrote in the book about the three experiences yes. of telling my three children they were autistic. Um, but Ellie's one, this is another one of them I'll never forget. Um, we were in the car. She was 14 at this time and we had just come from one of her appointments. She was struggling with um, secondary school and the volume of people and just all that that entails. The lots of changes of the classroom, walking in the halls, those things were really difficult for her. So she was in the back of the car and which is where I find we have some of the best conversations with my kids is when they're in the back of the car and they're maybe not looking at me, but we have these conversations. And I said something about autism and she said, but, but I'm not autistic. And I looked in the rear view and I looked at her and I said, but you, you are autistic, love. And she said, ma'am, I'm not autistic. And I said, oh my God. So I assumed that she knew We were going to all these appointments for years and years, but maybe, and I mustn't have ever actually said the words, Ellie, you are autistic. And she did not know. She burst into tears. She cried the whole way home. I felt so horrifically guilty. She couldn't uh, speak about it for months. It was months before she was able to speak about it. And it took two or three more years actually for her to um, accept and embrace this as part of who she is or not even part of as who she is. Yes. But it was devastating for her but we assumed she was coming to the appointments with us she had an SNA in school we'd lots of appointments in the school we'd lots of different therapies but we'd never directly said those words you have a diagnosis of autism amazing and and uh, back to communication uh, that that's so essential especially for children we assume sometimes a bit too much and, and we underestimate them too uh, you, you mentioned Daniel uh, comes along and he's the black sheep of the family because he yes. has no diagnosis to speak <laughs> yes. of and you say that in jest, of course. And baby number three then it comes along, and that's Alex. Uh, at that point, you were 25. And from the beginning, you noticed a difficulty there. You talk about floppy body and head lag and, and other issues. Uh, talk to me about your concerns there and when you realised, OK, we're, we're in, we're in a, a tricky situation here. Um, well, with Alex, it was more the physical disability um that became apparent fairly early on. He didn't meet a lot of his milestones. He would be um, quite floppy in that if you went to put him standing on your lap, his legs would just fold underneath him. Mm. So at nine months, he was diagnosed with global developmental delay. So his gross and his fine motor, he wasn't really passing things between his hands. You know, um, very specific developmental milestones. So we were referred for early intervention and we had physiotherapy and occupational therapy until eventually he walked at 19 months. Mm. Um, But he was the most placid baby. He slept at night really early on. He was just 
uh, so adorable and he's exactly the same now. He's just the easiest little person in the world um, to be around. Mm -hmm. So it, when he started school, then the teacher flagged, you know, there's still some gross motor issues. So once your child walks, that's it. You're gone out of early intervention. Well, that was my experience with my younger two anyway that had physical issues. Mm -hmm. um, so she flagged that, you know, there was still some gross motor. So he was diagnosed initially with dyspraxia. So we were getting services for dyspraxia specifically. So this means that it's developmental coordination disorder. So the organisation of tasks. So if I went to put on my shoes, I would pick up my shoes, I would put my foot in, I would tighten the lacers. Children with DCD might struggle with those steps or to know what comes next. So he always needed extra help, in particular with like tying lacers. He would have been maybe 12 when he eventually, we were able to help him to learn how to tie his lacers. And this was after going to classes on this. Um, so he's always had, I suppose, those physical issues and difficulties. But, I, I, and I suppose we explained some of the quirkiness or some of the other social cues as being part of that. And perhaps they weren't. And it was almost by accident. We were at a dentist appointment and the dentist said, have you considered um, getting him assessed? And it was just like one of those moments where everything just stopped. And I went, how did I not see this? And Ryan asked Lara about Daisy. Let us uh, march towards uh, child number four and this is Daisy who came along and was what you describe as a fussy baby, bit of a screamer from day one and um, this meant you didn't sleep for how long? Um, she didn't sleep till she was nearly four and Ellie didn't sleep till she was four either. So, And I do talk in the book about all the things we tried, all these alternative therapies and everything that we had tried but not sleeping really takes its toll again mental health wise. Well, um, not sleeping is, is used as a form of torture by, you know, rogue governments around the world. I, I believe it. You, I would. And you know it. <laughs> I mean, whatever about a newborn baby proving to be, you know, that that's what happens. The sleep is the, is the thing, most common thing people talk about. But for three years, four years? Yeah. And this wasn't just once or twice a night. This was 10 times a night or 12 times a night. It was just non-stop all of the time um, and then of course when a baby or a little toddler has been up all night their mood is going to be impacted the next day because they're exhausted so this was why eventually um, one of the GPs we saw or, or one of the paediatricians we saw suggested melatonin so melatonin is a supplement uh, for sleep but we got a bit of kickback from a, a locum GP at that time then a lot of judgment actually when I rang to have the script rewritten um, to say, why would you want to medicate your child? And then I realised what was happening, that this was, uh, I was being judged as a parent. Mm -hmm. And why would I want to medicate my child? It had been four years at that stage of not having a night's sleep. I had three other children to look after as well as this child. And she was struggling behaviourally because she'd been up all night. So there was so many different reasons, but the assumption that this would have been my first port of call. Lara Mullins from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, Irish craft brewers are taking advantage of big brewery price hikes and bringing the artisan touch to the pint. Now, Irish craft beers and local brewers are enjoying a moment in the sun after Heineken raised the price of a keg, leading to some pubs seeking out cheaper alternatives. And many craft brewers started making their own beers as a hobby. And we're joined by two of them today to explain how it all works. David Walsh Chemist took home brewing to a new level when he set up Ballykilcavan Farm and 
Brewery in County Leash and Tandy Gallarme is Vice President of the National Home Brew Club. And you're both very welcome. Thank you for being here. So now I'm going to start with you, David, because your story is very interesting. Your family have been farming for generations in County Leash and this is a new development. Tell us how it happened. It is, yeah. We've been, the family's been there since 1639. So I'm 13th generation of the family living and working on the farm. I took over 2004 and it was it was a tillage farm so we grew a lot of malting barley on the farm and I suppose after about 10 years of farming we worked out between myself and my wife that it was going to be very hard to sustain the future of the of the farm um, financially as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. And you're in great on great tillage land there. We are, yeah, Valley, as, as where you, you are. There, County Leash, yeah. you know, East County Leash is, is fantastic particularly for malting barley. It's just exactly the right type of ground, climate, everything comes mm-hmm. together. So And people will know the lovely rolling golden fields during the summer and, and coming up to harvest harvest time. Absolutely, so you yeah. decided to capitalise on that in a different way to how you had been doing before. We did. Now. I mean, we'd been growing barley, we'd been selling it to the malting company and that was about the end of it as far as we could see. So um, we decided we wanted to diversify the farm. We came up with the idea of opening a brewery. So we're now able to use our own barley. We're using our own well water as well. And we grow some hops on the farm as well. We're taking that into, into the new brewery. Now the brewery's only been there four years, um, so that it's a little bit newer than the farm. But uh, that was the diversification we came up with and mm-hmm. we've been making beers on the farm. And you started by messing around with this yourself. <laughs> yes. Is that fair to say? That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, it is. It is very much so because I always had an interest in the barley that we grew. As I say, we sold it. We didn't really know what happened to it after that. So I started around with, I mean, plastic buckets and, and uh, kits out of a can um, and then progressed on a little bit to using grain uh, and making the beers out of that. But it was very much a case of it. It was, it was a hobby. It was fun. I enjoyed it. And that's one of the reasons we opened the commercial brewery was because I knew I enjoyed the process of making the beers. So mm-hmm. it was nice to be able to bring that into a bigger scale and, and make a business. And how it. big is it now? Oh, it's still tiny. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a thousand litre kit, but I started off on 20 litres, so it seems like a big upgrade. But uh, it's still a very small brewery. Uh, there's three of us, apart from myself, working in the in the brewery around the, the production and sales and marketing as well. But you're selling commercially, right? Oh, we are, absolutely. We've been selling commercially actually for five years um, because we started off in another brewery. We were bar- sort of paying for someone else's time and space in their own brewery and making the beers first. And then we opened our own on-farm brewery uh, in December. December 2018. Mm. And Tandy told Claire how she got involved. Gosh, I mean, I've come at, come at it from a slightly different way, I guess, or at least I'm going in a different direction. Um, I've, I've been home brewing for about 10 years, and it also happened a bit accidentally. My um, husband bought us a homebrew kit for one Valentine's as a, <laughs> as a way <laughs> of What a romantic present. Right? <laughs> I mean, the joke is that I bought him a case of beer, so it was, you know, it was destiny, really. <laughs> um, so we started homebrewing as, as another kind of hobby. And, you know, I found that people who like to make sourdough beer or, you know, people who like to do things, make things from scratch, can be drawn to this kind of a hobby, you know, along the way. So it's been about 10 years, and I've even moved from South Africa to Ireland with my kit in tow. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have a, a high-end kit now or are you still using the basics? I do I do now, but I think that, you know, when you get into homebrewing, you can start out with the very basics, which is just a bucket and a, some bottles and, you know, a capper. And that's where you start. You can, you know, then start progressing, whether you start by um, owning all of the ingredients for your brew. So that's what we call all grain. Uh, where you choose the malts and the hops and the yeast that you're going to use, design your own recipes. Some people then move on into things like kegging the beer instead of bottling, because bottling is a bit of a, a, <laughs> a bit of a faff. <laughs> it's the, it's a joyless task. But um, you know, you can go 
from as basic to as advanced as you want in this in this hobby. How long does it take to go from a standing start to a bottle of beer? Um, on average, four weeks. It depends very much though on the style um, and what you're what you're hoping to get out of it. Have you ever had any disasters? Any really horrible ones? Oh gosh, I mean, some, <laughs> so I think everyone's got a disaster story. <laughs> I've had a few beers that just didn't taste the way I wanted them to go because sometimes if you neglect the methodology or the process along the way, um, it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. But it's um, the most common story is that of bottle bombs. So people bottling their beer and them getting you know, overly carbonated and exploding in the middle of the night and people think that they've got <laughs> gunshots <laughs> or fireworks. Um, but no, luckily I've, it's been my, um, my a, own A bottle failings. bomb is quite a violent thing, right? It, it ends is. up on the ceiling. You're nodding in agreement. But that's obviously <laughs> happened to you as no, well. I, I would like to point out, commercially we've never done no. this, just to point that out <laughs> at the start. But yes, certainly, I mean, I've never actually blown a bottle up, but I have got to the stage where you take the, t- take the cap off when you're going to pour it and the beer will come up. Shoot up. Pretty much yes. at your ceiling. So, so, Tandy, how difficult is it? Is it like following a recipe in a cookbook mm. or is it more complicated than that? I like to think of it as something between baking and cooking. Okay. So you need somewhat the precision in terms of your methodology of baking, but you have got the creativity that you can have with cooking. So, you know, we don't talk about brewing a beer styles per se. It's a guideline. Brew a beer. Play with your malts, play with your yeast, play with your hops. See what comes out. And what do you make now? What types of beer do you make? I mean... I'm one of these sort of brewers that likes to try everything once and most things twice. So currently I've got a red ale in my fermenter and I've got a, a porter or something like a porter, we'll see, um, in the fermenter. But it can be can be anything, really. So that's just you experimenting and, yeah. and seeing what, yeah, what you absolutely. like. So David, if anyone is thinking now, you know, particularly coming up to Christmas where they might have a little break from work and they might like to explore this, where do you start? What I mean, you mentioned having a can and a very basic stuff, but yeah, you probably I mean, there's need a bit of guidance as well. A little bit of guidance. I mean, there, you can get a very basic kit. There's three very good online um, places. We're very lucky in Leash. We have one of the best homebrew stores in Mount Melick, the homebrew company. There's Getter Brewed up north. There's the Homebrew company, Homebrew West um, over in the west of the country. And you can go on there. They will give you, a, a, you know, you can buy a basic kit with, as I say, your buckets, your thermometers, um, mm. kit for testing uh, the beers and the ingredients. And then you can expand up from there and, and really start simple. And then, you know, I'm sure you will find that you enjoy it. And then you can go on to more advanced kits. Is it an, an expensive hobby? It can be. It can be. If you want to go very advanced, if you want to start milling your own grains, if you want to do everything from scratch and control every aspect, it can be, but it doesn't need to be. Mm. It can literally be a pot on a stovetop. How do you know if it's badly infected? It will taste wrong. It'll taste it very strange. To be honest, if there's something really badly wrong with it, you'll taste it before you're going to drink it anyway, so it's not going to make you sick. Mm -hmm. David Walsh, chemist from Ballykill Cabin Farm and Brewery from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.